Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. It is a couple of quick announcements as we get started with our message. Uh, if you want and you've got your physical Bible, you can be slowly or quickly turning that to Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. That's where we're going to be looking at today in the Gospel of Mark. But first, a couple of quick announcements. Baptism, we're going to be doing baptisms both Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. So if you are interested in baptism, whether it's as your first act of obedience after your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, or if you were baptized a long time ago, like in the river with the dinosaurs, and um, you've come to a place in your life of repentance or change, or you need a new uh, kind of milestone in your faith walk, baptism is also uh, an acceptable thing for you to partake of in that regard as well. So Uh, baptism either for those first-timers or those who are in a place of repentance and renewal. We'll be celebrating baptism on Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. A couple of uh, you guys might have noticed we've got some families with younger children, and they're starting to get to an age where they squirm a little bit more than they used to. And those of us who have had children know that it becomes difficult. Your lap is no longer big enough to keep them throughout the service. And uh, while the children are always welcome in the service, we also want to provide the ministry of a nursery, just in case. So uh, we've got uh, Shelly, wherever she went. Um, My wife just left. Uh, Apparently, that's it. Um, Into the service for her. Uh, But she'll be coordinating our nursery. And uh, so if you're interested in serving in the nursery, what you need to do is simply email nursery at Faith Lakeside. For you parents who are saying, Yes, when will this happen? We're working on it. We've got to get the volunteers in place and get our system in place. So please be patient. If you would like to serve in the nursery, clearances will be required. So you need to be able to go onto the uh, Pennsylvania websites and get your clearances for serving in child care and things. So um, we need help with that. One final announcement that was given to me at the last minute. So it's on my hand. Uh, The homeless shelter is in need of Towels, sheets, blankets, bedspreads, and comforters uh, to serve the homeless community and help um, just just make life better for them. So if you've got like a closet full of any of those things, either gently used or brand new, you can bring those to the church and we will make sure they get to the proper ministry to meet the needs of others. So that was, again, towels, sheets, blankets, bedspreads, or comforters. So uh, we can take any of those over the next couple of weeks in order to get those in the proper hands for ministry. So we are going to continue today our series on the Christ. What a privilege it is to have all of you here today. We've also got an exciting thing coming up at the end of the service. If you guys remember earlier this year, we voted to approve two new deacons. And uh, we're going to talk about what a deacon is and what they do here a little later. But we're going to be ordaining those two deacons. And ordination is an act of laying hands on them and praying for them to be blessed by God to serve as fully as he desires 
in the ministry that they've been given. So we're looking forward to ordaining our two newest deacons later in the service. But before we get to that, we're going to continue looking at the gospel according to Mark and, and the truth that Mark wants us to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And last week we, we were talking about um, sacrificial living, being able to abandon all of our false gods and chase after Jesus Christ, that it isn't the good works that we do that matter, it is instead this life of abandonment to Jesus that is what brings us into the kingdom. And Jesus, as he concluded teaching the disciples last Sunday, said to them, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And that's in Mark chapter 10, verse 31. And Jesus was really helping his disciples in this moment to remember it is not our great accomplishments that usher us into the kingdom. It is instead a lifestyle of sacrifice and submission to Jesus Christ, his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection, believing on those things that will bring us into a place of prominence within the kingdom. And so by the time we get to Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45, we see Jesus continuing to teach his closest disciples, kind of based on what's going on. Now, if you remember all the way back at the end of chapter 8, beginning of chapter 9, Peter had made his profession that Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus had said, had told him, you, you speak rightly, and then Jesus began... From that point, this journey to Jerusalem to die on the cross for your sins and mine. And so this uh, passage here is really part of that journey to Jerusalem. Part of Jesus walking with his disciples to the city of Jerusalem in preparation for his death on the cross. And in fact, by the time we get to chapter 11, verse 1, we will be at the triumphal entry of Jesus, which is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. So, first though, we want to get through this passage and see what Jesus would have to say to us today. So we're going to start in chapter 10 and look at verses 32 through 34 first. So here we go, Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. <coughs> Excuse me. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days... He will rise. So we see they're on the journey to Jerusalem, and it says that they were going up to Jerusalem. Now, what happened here is that when Jesus is traveling from northern Israel up around the Sea of Galilee, instead of coming directly south toward Jerusalem through what was called Samaria, what is still the area of Samaria, he went and uh, took a, a, a more uh, eastern route went around Samaria out towards the east past the Jordan River and then was coming back from the Jordan River toward Jerusalem. So when it says that they were going up to Jerusalem, 
they literally would be going up to Jerusalem, coming up out of the Jordan River Valley to the city of Jerusalem, which sits higher than where they were walking from. So here they're walking up to Jerusalem. He's got his disciples who were amazed and others who were following behind who were afraid. And we can see there's some tension in the air. Everybody knows that something is going on here, that Jesus is leading them into a different circumstance than they have ever experienced previously. So Jesus says this to them. He says, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. So we see Jesus beginning to tell of what's going to happen to the Son of Man. And you might wonder, who is this Son of Man? Well, it's a term that Jesus uses to describe himself. And, and it, it gives us a picture of Jesus in his complete humanity. We already know and have seen repeated over and over again his divinity. He is God incarnate. And yet we see here as well he is completely man, the son of man. Now there's also a reference in the book of Daniel, a prophecy that Daniel gives, chapter 7, in which the ancient of days, a picture of God, welcomes someone like, who looks like the son of man into his presence and gives this son of man authority over all of creation and makes him the king of the earth, essentially. And so what we see is when Jesus calls himself son of man, he is both identifying with us and our fleshiness, but he's also referring back to that prophecy in Daniel. And when everyone hears him say son of man, they know he's claiming to be the one that God himself welcomes into the clouds and gives authority over everything. So Jesus is, in saying son of man, saying much more than just those three words. He's saying, I'm the one who will be given authority over everything. So we see this prediction that he says, the one who will be given authority over all the world is going to first go to Jerusalem. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has said this. He's actually given two other predictions previous to this that are just like this. In chapter 9, verses 9 through 13 and 30 through 32, he's also predicted that he will be going and giving his life, that he will be suffering and dying. If you remember all the way back, in the first time, it was actually Peter who said, no, we're not going to let that happen, Jesus. But Jesus is insistent, telling them this third time even more detail about what's going to happen. Jesus says he's going to be rejected by his own, delivered over to the Jewish leaders and then rejected by them, sent to the Gentile leaders, the pagans, the ones who should have no authority over any good Jew and not only that is going to happen, but he's also going to be mocked and spit upon and flogged. And finally, he'll be killed. This is his prediction about what's going to happen, why they're going to Jerusalem. Wouldn't that be great? It, like mom and dad are taking you on a vacation 
hey, by the way, we're going to Florida. There's going to be a hurricane. We'll be without electricity. We likely will not be able to flush the toilets. There'll be very little food. But it's going to be so exciting, won't it? Don't you look forward to Florida? No, I mean, that would be a terrible way to sell a vacation, wouldn't it? And yet this is what's going on with Jesus and his disciples. He is telling them, we're going to Jerusalem, and we're going to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. But while we're there, I'm going to be rejected, delivered to the heathens, mocked, spit upon, and flogged, and I'm going to be killed. This is going to be a great vacation, guys. You see, this is not a good selling point. But what Jesus does finish with was this amazing and beautiful truth, but one that the disciples tended to overlook over and over again. He says, and after three days, he, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, will rise. And the disciples had gotten so caught up by the time it all happens in the the flogging and the mocking and the spitting and the death that they forgot this one phrase, this one little bit of the prediction. After three days, he will rise. Jesus saying, after three days, it's going to be really bad, but after three days, I will come back to life. I will be resurrected. And so Jesus gives them this prediction, telling them that he The king of all creation, the one who will be given authority over everything, is going to his death, but he will rise again. Now, an interesting thing happens in the next set of verses. Jesus just tells his disciples, I'm going to go suffer and die. And the first thing that two of them come up with is a request. So if you look with me in your Bibles or in your Bible app, Mark chapter 10, verse 35, it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So Jesus just finishes telling his disciples that he, the king of all creation, is going to suffer and die and rise again. And the first thing that James and John think of is Jesus. Hey, we got this favor to ask of you. Just promise us you'll do whatever we ask. Don't you know that when somebody says that to you, you are in big trouble if you agree? I mean, who agrees to that kind of request? Hey, mom, just whatever I ask, do it, right? How many mothers are doing that? How many fathers? How many friends? You've got a friend. Even your best friend comes up and says to you, just do whatever I ask. You don't do that because you know it's trouble. 
Now, Jesus does not do that. He asks them what they want. But what's interesting is in Mark, it says that James and John asked Jesus this. Matthew records a little bit of a twist. Matthew says that it was the mother of James and John who came to them or came to Jesus and asked on their behalf. Can you imagine what that would be like? Your mother going to Jesus and saying, hey, my boys, they're such good boys. They deserve something special, Jesus. Would you do whatever I ask of you? Can you imagine that? Just first of all, Jesus has just finished telling them he is here to suffer and die and rise again. So what's their, their response? Hey, Jesus, we've got a favor to ask. And, and Jesus really, I mean, being the God of all creation, even though he's incarnate, understands that, you know, there's a little bit of a game to be played here. And he says to them, what do you want me to do for you? And, and, and their request is, when you come to your glory, because we know you're the son of man, you've just said so, so when you ascend to rule over all creation and are given power by the, the Almighty, here's what we want. Can one of us sit at your right hand and one of us sit at your left hand? So they're asking for the two most prominent positions of authority and power underneath Jesus. Does this sound like anything you've seen in our culture, in our society? Hey, when you get where you're going to go, when you're famous, remember me. Make sure to bring me along. Remember what I did for you. Remember how I was your first fan. Every one of us as a human tends to fall prey to seeking power and notoriety and authority. I mean, even somebody like me, I'm a little bit of a recluse and an introvert in my personal life. But when I post something on Facebook, I get giddy when people, you know, like it. <laughs> oh, people pay attention to me. I'm alive. Anybody else feel that way? Or, or, you know, this has only happened to me once, but on Twitter, I make a comment and somebody with a blue check mark likes it or shares it. And it's just like, really? I'm famous now. I mean, we all want that kind of power and notoriety and authority. If you are a parent, have you ever gone on a power trip with your kids? And, and you don't have to shake your head and, and confess out loud. But in your mind, acknowledge the truth that you have. That there was at least that one time where it just felt good to put them in their place. To be in charge. To play the because I said so game. Right? I mean, isn't that, oh, it's just like intoxicating. Why? Because I said so. All of us crave that power and that notoriety and that authority. And James and John thought they had discovered the way to achieve it in a really pious and spiritual way. Jesus, when you are exalted, would you just bring us up there with you? Make us as important as we think we deserve to be. Or if it was their mother who did the asking, make my boys as important as I think they deserve to be. Now, you might say, well, is this a conflict in the two Gospels? No, both could be true in that it could have been the boys who sent their mother to ask. 
And so Matthew records all the details while Mark keeps the story succinct and understands it was James and John themselves who sent their mother. And so it is the same as James and John asking. But they're seeking power and notoriety and authority. And before any of us point our fingers at James and John and say, tisk tisk, you unspiritual men, we must look at ourselves. There's a, a poem written by a, a, a pastor, his name is Robert Rains, and he says this in his poem. He says, I am like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors, your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank check for whatever I want. I am like James and John. Especially in modern American Christianity, we have been led to believe that we love God and serve God and love and serve others for the sake of being blessed and becoming more powerful and prominent and special in the kingdom of God. And that's kind of what James and John thought. Jesus, let us hang out with you. What a spiritual thing that'll be. Oh, and we'll be famous too and powerful and we'll have authority. So Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, some of us might read that and go, well, of course, I can drink whatever. I, Jesus, I can drink you under the table. Um, <laughs> baptism, no problem. I'll go down to the Jordan and get dunked twice. I'm even better than you, Jesus. The deal is here is Jesus is not talking about a literal baptism or a little literal drink, but instead Jesus is speaking symbolically of his suffering. All throughout scripture we see the, the idea of a cup being representative of wrath or persecution or suffering or judgment. That baptism, while it is in our mindset something to celebrate, in Jesus' day and age, and in the metaphor of the day, baptism could be about being dunked in turmoil and storms. That water did not carry with it the significance of cleansing and rebirth, but instead of judgment and struggle. And Jesus is saying, here's the deal, James and John. There is something that's coming up in my life and I don't think you can handle it. So I don't think you know what you're asking for. And what is his cup? What is his baptism? If you remember just previously, Jesus taught so clearly what was coming for him. He said he would be rejected by his own. He would be delivered to pagans. He would be mocked and spit upon and flogged. And ultimately, he would be killed. This is the cup of Jesus. This is the baptism of Jesus. 
And so when he speaks to James and John and says, you guys don't know what you're asking for. Can you really suffer what I'm going to suffer? This is what he's referring to. Now, I, I love how they answer because they say this. They say to him, we're able. In the Greek, it's one word. Just one word. It's kind of like that. Well, yeah, sure. Sure. What are you talking about? Of course. No problem. We can do whatever we need to do, Jesus. They say, we're able. And Jesus goes on to say to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. He says to them, regardless of whether you're able or not, you will experience this same type of persecution, the same type of suffering. You think you want notoriety, you think you want authority, you think you want power, but I got to tell you that following me only comes with this cup and this baptism. This is what you will receive. This is what you are signing up for. This suffering, this trouble, and yet in the end, resurrection. Now he tells them to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Who do you think it is to grant? Whose authority is it to grant? Well, the Father. Father God. Remember, we serve this God who is so beautiful and unique. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in which the Son is obedient to the Father and the Spirit flows from the Father and the Son. And so we see that even Jesus himself is submitted to the will of the Father and awaits to see who will be at his right and his left in his great kingdom. So Jesus is essentially telling these two, listen, it's going to happen to you. You will be rejected by your own. You will be delivered to the pagans. You may, in fact, be mocked and spit upon and flogged, and you may even have to give your life. And this is the price of discipleship. This is what it literally might cost you to walk as a Christian. Now, I, I do have to say, we as 21st century Americans have a twisted vision of what persecution or struggle might be. Just because the barista at Starbucks does not say Merry Christmas, that's not persecution. If the cashier at Target says Happy Holidays, that's not persecution. And, and I have to be honest, even if the government begins to, to, to pass laws that limit ostensibly or, or you know, what we're supposed to be able to speak or how we can share our faith, that's still not the kind of persecution that Jesus says could be ours. He says our faith should be so critical, so important to us. Our discipleship and walking with him should be so valuable to us that we are willing to suffer even to the point of death. This is the price of discipleship. So as we continue in the passage, we see James and John have this crazy reaction to Jesus saying he's going to suffer and die. And then the other ten aren't much better. Starting in verse 41, here's what scripture says. And when the ten heard it, 
they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the first reaction the other disciples have isn't, James, John, come on, don't you understand? We all understand that we're here to give our lives for Jesus. Their first response instead is, James, John, what are you thinking? We want those two positions. We think that we deserve to sit at his right hand or his left hand. James and John, how could you even think that you're more important than the rest of us? Isn't that kind of interesting to, to see? How the response of Jesus' closest disciples is one of selfishness, one of self-serving, one of longing for notoriety and authority and power. And yet Jesus wants to change their focus, and he wants to change the way that they see themselves and their relationship to him and one another. So he calls them together, and he says this to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Now, why would he cite Gentiles? Why would he look to Gentiles? Remember, the Jewish people in Israel, that's one section of humanity, according to Scripture, and then Everybody who's not Jewish is a Gentile. And Jews and Gentiles, according to Jewish culture, were not supposed to intermingle and mix. And, and the Gentile cultures were looked upon with disdain. They, they were seen to be pagan and, and dirty and, and apart from God's blessing. And so Jesus is citing the Gentile rulers. And, and why? Well, because the Gentiles at that day and age were the ones who ruled everything. The pagans were in charge. And Jesus says, I want you to look around at our pagan culture. I want you to look to Rome. I want you to look back into Jerusalem and see Pontius Pilate. I want you to, to understand that we are ruled by Gentiles. And, and the ones who are considered the rulers amongst the Gentile nations... They lord it over everyone. In other words, they stand up and pretend to be the most important person in the room every time they come in. I mean, it's, it's just this attitude of elitism, this attitude of better than-ism, this attitude of nanny and taking care of and condescending and looking down upon. Does that sound familiar to anyone? The, the Gentiles, the, the pagans, they, they long to be people of authority and power and notoriety. And, and they're great ones, the, the truly prominent ones, they exercise authority over them. In other words, they speak and you have to do. They command and you respond. And Jesus says, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave 
of all. Now, when Jesus talks about being first and great, he, he always has in mind this, this metaphor he uses in other gospels of coming to a dinner table, being invited to a table. And when you're invited to a, a dinner with someone of, of importance, you never take for yourself the most important seat at their right hand at the head of the table. Instead, you would, you would find at that table the least important seat. Because if you don't deserve that most important seat, do you know what will happen to you? If you're not the second most important person in the room, you will be asked to stand up in front of everyone and move to the back of the line. But if you are well-ranked and you sit in the least seat, you will be asked to stand up and come to your proper place. It's an attitude of humility. It's an attitude of understanding that we're not the most important and we need to wait for God to establish our value and give us our place. And it's only in Christ that that happens. Whoever would be great needs to have an attitude of being the least and the last. What's interesting is the word servant here is the exact same word that we get the word deacon from. And so when we see this, everyone who wants to be someone in the kingdom of God should be serving, should be putting others first. And in fact, if you want to be the most important person in the kingdom, you need to be willing to be a slave to all. And not just willing, but in actuality, serving as though you were a slave. And then Jesus says, here's why. For even I, the Son of Man, the King of all creation, the one who will be exalted over everything, I didn't come to be served. I deserve it more than any of you. I deserve to be served and worshipped more than anybody in this room, he says to his disciples. But I didn't come for that. I came to serve and to give my life for others. And we all know exactly what that means in retrospect, don't we? We see the story unfold and giving his life as a ransom for many is not just some sort of symbolic, oh, I give my life for you because I love you so much. Now give me your money. But instead, it was a literal giving of his life for our sake. And so what we have is this mindset that Jesus wants us to understand is that if you think you want to lead, you should be the first one serving in every circumstance. And that your heart should be one of service. Now this is not just about pastors or elders or deacons. It trickles all the way down into our spiritual life and our home life and our work life. As Christians, any time we are in a place of authority, our heart should be to serve. Are you, a, are you an employer? You were put in that position by God to serve, not to lord it over others. Are you a father, a mother? You were put in that position of authority 
to serve, not to lord it over and squash and destroy. Are you a husband? Are you a wife? You were put in those positions to serve and to give. If you, you're president, if you're dog catcher, you're put in those positions to serve when you're a Christian and to give of yourself for the sake of others. And so we've had this, this, this term coined. It's called servant leadership. Anybody ever heard that, that term used? Yeah, some, especially in the business world, you might hear it in modern days. And here's the problem, especially in the church, especially in Christianity, we get this mindset that I will serve you so long as it benefits me. I will serve you to prove that I'm worthy of your offerings or your support. I will do nice things for you so you will follow me as though I were a dictator or a cult leader. So some things to know about the servant leadership that Jesus calls us to. Here's the thing. It isn't about meeting people's needs so they'll follow you. It's not about doing nice things so you can earn people's love and respect. That was politics. I, you know, I, I'm in it, right? But reading a, an article earlier today and, and, and seeing that the expectation is that the president's popularity will go up now that there is money being deposited into people's accounts. Now, we can have differing perspectives on politics, but do you understand that we have served you, so support us. We have given to you, now we expect you to give by bowing down and following after and lauding us and, and approving of us. And, and it, it isn't just this president, the last president, and the one before that and the one before that. They do things to please their followers in order to convince their followers more resolutely follow them. Here's the other thing it doesn't mean, to serve others in hopes of God giving you more money or authority or power. I, I have to tell you the truth is, is that as Christians, Scripture tells us very clearly that we should give. And we should be willing to give as the Lord lays on our hearts, to give generously as it's appropriate. But... If you give thinking that by giving a certain percentage of your income, God will give you more, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tithe knowing that, believing that, trusting that I'll get a 20% increase in pay or I'll get that better job or I'll get that, right? I mean, if you are giving to God, hoping that he will give you more back, if you are teaching Sunday school or you're serving by cleaning or you're doing anything in hopes not that you will be able to glorify God and serve others in their needs but in the hopes that God will give you more then you are not genuinely practicing servant leadership if you are doing things for the good of others while being dominating or abusive or unchristlike in other words, you are telling people this is how it's supposed to be and you're forcing it as, a, as a, your authority allows you 
but it's, it's for your good. It's for your good. But nobody can see Christ in you. Nobody can see through your exercise of authority the goodness of a loving God. You aren't practicing servant leadership. The other thing, servant leadership isn't extreme asceticism. And, and you might say, Michael, why do you like to use big words? And I like to use big words because it makes me seem smart. But it also stretches all of us to learn and grow intellectually. Christianity is not a faith just of emotions, but of intellect as well. And it can be intellectually satisfying, even as it is emotionally satisfying. So the word asceticism means to forego physical things, to give up the pleasures of life. And so servant leadership doesn't necessarily mean selling everything and giving it to the poor as we saw was Jesus' call on the life of the rich young ruler. It doesn't mean you have to go be a missionary in outer Gamba Gamba and, and, and never you know, eat red meat again. Listen, in fact, that can be a greater act of pride and selfishness and self-notoriety than to live a humble, well-stewarded life. And finally, Servant leadership isn't just being a servant so you can say, I'm a leader. Sadly, what we see in the modern church is a lot of people claiming to be servant leaders, all doing the things that we say it's not. Saying, I give, so give back to me. I serve you, so lift me up. I got to tell you, I, I really do take issue, and it's just my little pet peeve, with pastors and ministry leaders who name their ministry after themselves. Now, I do have chamberspreaching.com, um, but I used, <laughs> I mean, I don't use it anymore, but it was just so I could upload my sermons and my family members could listen to them. That was before the age of YouTube and Facebook. But, but, you know, to, to name a ministry after yourself seems like the height of James and John arrogance to me. Now, you might think differently. I'm not trying to tell you to think that way, but I am saying you can see in our culture, even in our Christian culture, people who say they're leading as a servant, and instead their whole goal is to become more powerful, to become more famous, and to become more like a Gentile leader and not like Jesus. Here's what servant leadership is. Without any regard, without any regard for whether anyone else is following or not, it is about meeting other people's needs instead of your own. And listen, I, I want you, if somebody is sitting out there and going, Michael, you're not perfect, I will be the first to admit I am not perfect. And, and I fall short in this. But these are what we should be aspiring to. This is the kind of lifestyle we should be looking forward to. To meet other people's needs instead of our own. If you were to look in your Bible at Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. 
not do few things, not do only secular things, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Not count them as significant or as important as you are, but especially in the fellowship of believers to count others as more important than you are. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Genuine servant leadership is about meeting other people's needs, not just in addition to your own, but it should be even instead of your own. To serve because God has given you everything you need. Understanding you're already complete in Christ. He provides your daily bread. He's given you what you need. And so serving is a pleasure. It's not a goal to be more. It is I am everything I need to be in Christ. And so I have the pleasure of serving. Servant leadership is good stewardship. It's not about being poor for the name of Jesus. It's not being about being rich in Christ's name. It's about using what you have to serve and meet the needs of others, and sometimes even going above and beyond and meeting their needs instead of your own. Servant leadership is about constantly and consistently showing the folks around you what it means to be a servant, what it means to give of yourself when nobody's paying attention. Servant leadership is what you do when, when nobody gives you a plaque, when nobody gives you a thank you card. Servant leadership is what you do when nobody celebrates you when there's not a servant leaders month it's what you do because you are in Christ we shouldn't long to be like the culture around us in our leadership we shouldn't be seeking after fame and notoriety but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever must be first among you must be slave to all and that brings us today, as we look at both ourselves in light of Scripture and also our, our church leadership in light of Scripture, it brings us to ordaining two new deacons. And after this message, they might both be like, oh no, I'm out. <laughs> and these, these deacons are being ordained to, to complete our, 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 or add to our leadership team and their job is to be amongst the chief servants of our church. So that when you look to them, you don't look at them and go, Oh, Deacon Aaron, we gravel at your feet and we, we long to know what you would have us to do. But it is instead to quietly sit back and watch when Aaron greets folks. And when we have, have them, hands out bulletins and does whatever's necessary around. That, that you don't go to Ken and go, oh, Deacon Ken, we long for your wisdom. We know that God has blessed you. Lead us. But instead, when you drive up on the property on a weekday and you find him cleaning the playground after the homeschool group, 
You know, when, when the building's open and, and he's helping to make coffee or set up the snacks. or You, you get what I'm saying? And, and, and our other deacons, Steve and Steve, who are already serving so consistently, so faithfully in praying for others and welcoming and greeting and in, in, in being able to, to do the work of the ministry, not for prominence, not for the sake of notoriety. We will not have a deacon's month here where every day we celebrate one of the deacons. First of all, we only have four, so that'd be a lot of repeat. And second of all, because that's not why they do it. It's not what they're called to. And so when we see them, we should see what we all should be looking to be together. The last, the least, the ones who give, the ones who sacrifice, even when no one notices. Now, where do deacons come from in Scripture? Well, the first thing, place we see them is in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And this is where we discover that the role of deacon is a glorious, it's, it's, it's like an exalted position, and we'll see it here. You ready? Now, in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, or the Greek Jews, the Greek Christians, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to, pick, uh, to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wis- and of wisdom, who, will appoint, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith of the, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon, <laughs> and Parmenas and Nicholas, sorry, I was thinking Pumbaa too, and Pumbaa and Timon, and I had Lion King on the mind, um, and English was really hard to read that whole passage. Um, so anyway, and these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And, and so what we see is this glorious responsibility, this glorious position in the church was created for deacons. And what is this glorious and exalted position? Waiting tables. For widows. This is what it means to be a servant leader. This is what it means to be a deacon. This is what it ultimately means for all of us to be Christians. Is to be serving in a place where nobody really notices. Doing a job that's critical. Not for the fame. But for the glory of God and the good of others. And so today we have the privilege of ordaining two men that you've approved as deacons at our last business meeting. So I'd like to invite Aaron and Ken up, if you guys would come up this way and kind of stand one of you each in front of the plates and then our elders and existing deacons uh, who have not been ordained, if you guys would come up too. And uh, two of you each on an elder and a deacon on each of our, so Ken, if you'd be over here and then stand in front of that gray plate. Oh, because I'm, I'm like a little OCD, so, yeah, okay, it, it's got to look good for the camera. I'm kidding. What is it that ordination entails? Here, it's, it's this, um, this event where we all just agree in prayer, where leadership lays their hands 
on somebody? Why do you touch somebody? Why do you lay their ha your hands on them for an ordination? Because it's a sign of affirmation and care. And so I'm going to invite our existing deacons and elders to lay their hands on our deacons who are being ordained and for you to just join in in prayer with us as we lay hands on them and pray over them that God would use them, establish their ministry of service amongst us, and that we would be able to be like them as they are growing to be like Christ. Would you join me in prayer as we lay hands on our deacons and pray over them? So get a hand on them if, you, if you're not afraid. There you go. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for your love for us. And we thank you that you have given us two deacons to bring in, to ordain, to affirm as servant leaders. And we pray that you would bless their ministries, that you would give them clear sight to be able to see where they need to step in and serve. That you would help them to understand that sometimes it'll be jobs that they love and sometimes it'll be jobs that are terrible but it will always be things that you have given them for the good of others and your glory. Father God, as we look at them, as we watch them from a distance, as we see them in the shadows and on the sides and fringes doing the work of servant, may we be inspired to serve as well. Not for notoriety, not so that you'll bless us, or give us more good things. But instead, because you've already met every need, you've already blessed us with salvation and eternal life. Because you've given us everything, you deserve our ultimate service. Lord, bless these men. For Ken and for Aaron, may they see your face as they serve and be inspired to enter into ever-increasing levels of giving of themselves for your glory and the good of others. We do ordain them today as deacons of our church. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. As the worship team comes up, I ask you guys to just uh, kind of hang out up here together. Uh, and, and it could feel awkward if nobody does this, but we'll see. I want to encourage anybody and everybody who would like to come up and just pray over our, our new deacons or our existing leadership. This is our leadership team according to our church constitution. These are the men who will, elders watching over the spiritual affairs of the church and deacons helping to meet the physical needs of the church. These are the men who will help us to stay in the right direction. And we hope to add to this number in the coming years. First of all, because we'll need more deacons to care for a growing church. And second of all, because we believe that everyone ultimately should be serving as a leader in their own home, in, in the church body, in a Sunday school class. And so we want to see more and more leaders, men and women, raised up to serve. So I want to invite you to come pray over any of our leadership team if you want, or just to come give them a handshake as we close with our last song of the morning and consider how you might be the servant leader we're asking them to be. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today and this time. Open our heart, open our eyes, and help us to celebrate the privilege of serving you and others. Thank you for your love. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming, 
not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for us. Thank you for paying the price of your son. Thank you for rising again. Thank you that I can trust you with all of my life and that everyone here can do likewise. It's in your name we pray. together let's sing if you'd like to come and pray over any of our leadership team or just encourage or give a handshake please do so
you all for being here today. Thank you for being faithful and coming to the Lord's house and gathering together on this, his day. Remember that these are your servant leaders. These are the ones that if you have a need, please come to us. Please don't be afraid. And I, I did want to mention just kind of offhand, uh, you know, being aware of news and stuff. I know that moratoriums on utility payments are being lifted. In other words, bills are going to start coming due. If you are in a position because of COVID or because of life circumstances that that is going to become a difficult place for you, would you please come and talk to one of our deacons? Would you could we, we want to help meet the needs of everyone in our church family to the best of our abilities. And so if um, if life is difficult because of circumstances, we're not going to cover like gambling debt, but you know, um, we're, we're talking about you're in danger of losing utilities because of, of job situation. Please do not let it get critical before you come and ask for help. We love you. We want to be able to serve you. So God bless each and every one of you. May you have a mindset not of seeking notoriety and fame, but instead of giving of yourself for the glory of God, whether it's quiet and subtle and nobody notices or somebody says, good job, to do it all the same. Find one person this week that you can give sacrificially to, not just of money, that's nice, but really of yourself this week, whether it's your own children, your spouse, somebody at work who needs to see the love of Christ this week. God bless. We'll see you guys. Bible study tomorrow night, Wednesday night, women's study, Thursday night, youth group, and of course, Sunday school.